0: Thank you. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I'm once again taking you beyond the board, this time with special guest Robert Domain, whose job description is Conflict Game Designer at the Office of Asian and Pacific Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. So how are you doing today, Robert?
1: I'm doing really well, Liz.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. So you are a Conflict Game Designer. What exactly does that entail? Like Your actual job is designing games.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I should start out with, um, I'm actually a foreign service officer in the State Department. And I should mention uh, the usual caveat that everything I'm saying is just my own opinion and doesn't represent the government or the State Department or anyone else. But uh, yeah, so I started as a foreign service officer and uh, primarily uh, working overseas at our various embassies around the world. And this is a special assignment that I'm in now where i am working with others to try and bring uh gaming tools uh for use in the state department some of those could be like tabletop exercises or matrix games or other approaches as well so that that's that's the general focus of it
0: so just for clarification what is a matrix game what kinds of games do you design and play yes yeah,
1: so i i divide games up for for dealing with uh kind of real world problems into two broad categories. One would be seminar games, and those are argument-based games and things like tabletop exercises or matrix games. And the others are, are systems games, which are more rules bound. And those would be like traditional war games and or board games. So the rules are very structured in those formats. Whereas in the argument-based games or seminar games, uh, it's, it's much more flexible and loose. So a matrix game is just a, a, a subcategory, if you will, usually involving six to eight people, experts in some area. And the structure is you make an argument about something and why it would be successful. And then you go around the room and others make counter arguments, uh, either why it would not work, or they could do it in support of that. And you go around and listen to everyone's arguments, and then people kind of step out of their character and they may be representing a country or an organization or whatever you're, you're trying to figure out and game out. So they step outside of their, uh, their role and then they give an honest appraisal about how likely it is to succeed the action. And then uh, you can have people hold up like index cards with numbers on them, like ranging from 10% all the way up to 90% chance of success. And then the facilitator will quickly scan the crowd and say, okay, it looks like everyone thinks that this is like a 60% chance of success. And then the person would just roll a 10-sided die, and if it gets one through six, it's successful. You know, if it was seven or higher, it was not successful. So if it's a successful action, then that becomes a new established fact in the game. And then you go to the next person, and then they make then they propose their action that they're going to perform. And so it it works that way, but it's a very flexible format uh, that you can use for almost any kind of problem that you want to, to explore. If you can make arguments about it, then you could use that format.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Do you feel comfortable telling us some sample problems that you have gamed out in this way?
1: I I probably wouldn't talk about uh, the particular games because there were other countries or other issues, but, um, But the general format is to, uh, yeah, to present those arguments and then the counter arguments. So what you're really trying to get at is maybe assumptions that you may have held that you haven't examined or surprises, something that uh, causes you to think, huh, you know, I didn't really think about that. I better look into that more. So it's often used to not as an end point so much as more of a starting. Okay, we're exploring this topic. We want to uh, see where it goes and hopefully find some areas that we hadn't really thought about. And now we're going to do some more research on it.
0: So when it comes to research, how much research goes into sort of the pregame for a seminar game like this? I mean, what do you need to know before you're even able to really play and assess those probabilities or facilitate a game of this nature?
1: Yeah, I think it really depends on who your audience is. If you've got a lot of experts uh, who, who know a great deal about a country or an issue, then you, you don't need to provide as much background material. If you've got people coming with different backgrounds, then you're going to want to get everyone up to a certain minimal level of understanding so that they're kind of all on the same page. And then they'll bring their expertise in and people will respond and and interact with each other. So, so it really varies on their experience. But I should mention that um, Tom Moat is kind of like the Pied Piper of Matrix Gaming. He's in the UK and uh, works with the UK Department of Defense and uses these a great deal and has a website that he has posted a lot of Matrix games that he's designed and other people have designed and has an online uh, guide to uh, to using these, but Tom in a party will say, "You know, we're gonna we're gonna have a matrix game. Okay, we're in a western town, and you people are the bank robbers, and you people are the uh, the townspeople. And here's a rough map. Here's where the bank's located. Go." And so people will then kind of okay, I'm the bank robber. This is what I would do, and they'll just run with a game like that. So. You've got the whole spectrum from, okay, I need to do a lot of research and background that I'm going to present to people beforehand to, uh, you know, what Tom does in a party format where you're using people kind of spontaneously dealing with the issue. So it's it's that flexible where you can use it from anywhere in between those, those extremes.
0: That's so interesting. So it sounds like seminar games are meant to be very exploratory, very discussion-based so how do systems games play into your work? What kinds of rule sets um, are, are we looking at in this sort of professional context?
1: Yes. So I think the, the quintessential example of that is probably the Department of Defense war games. And uh, Mitch uh, was one of the earlier programs, talks a lot about those. And those are can be really large events where you've got a huge staff that might work on preparing a game for a year and then have high level officers come in and play that game for a week. So in that environment, uh, very, very structured in terms of what are all the rules going to be for engagements and how are we going to um, adjudicate? You know, there's a whole cell that's just figuring out, okay, I did this to that unit or something and this happened. Was it effective? And what, what damage did it, did it cause or what impact did it have? So people will try to work all of that out, at least the rules for engagement and how the impact is going to be way ahead of time. And so I think uh, Matrix games were almost designed a re- as a reaction against being having this heavy rule-bound kind of system and were a reaction to having these strict rules in place and wanting a freer, looser kind of structure where you could take it in maybe directions you didn't anticipate. So I think those would be the two main differences between the two, kind of the systems games, games as being very rule bound and having to work out all the details of the rules and seminar games being much looser, freer, being able to go in other directions. Now you also can have in a tabletop exercise, adjudication and a group of experts kind of deciding, okay, well, those actions wouldn't work based on this or that. And you can even use more sophisticated models, but they tend to be a little bit more um, flexible in in that regard.
0: So as a conflict game designer yourself, do you have a game style of choice or, or do both types of games play into the work that you do? Uh,
1: I would say it's right now we're dominated by the seminar games. Now, there, there are interesting uses of board games for analysis. And uh, we, we're we not doing that so much now, but I have seen other people do it. And and it's fascinating, you know, games on that have been produced on water crisis in the Middle East. And you get to play the roles of different countries and having to make all these difficult decisions about allocation of water. And, you know, if the farmers are, or the cities aren't getting enough, it's social unrest, but then you've got to deal with neighbors. And so all these complex issues you're dealing with can really help you, uh, well, one, empathize with decision makers who have to go through all that, but also make you aware of all the complex interactions. So, uh, again, I, I've, we've seen some very good examples of that. We haven't been producing them ourselves. It's a little, far, a little more complicated. But uh, I, I think it's something in the future we would like to produce. And as far as the large war games, we're, we're probably not, not there yet. Uh, we might try something at a smaller scale there's some other people in the Department of State who are very interested in kind of developing their capacity to do more about uh, wargaming out pandemics and the impacts of those. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're developing our capabilities, but we, we don't have the same culture and uh, focus on wargames that the Department of Defense does. And they also use a number of seminar games as well. But, you know, they've... Uh, people are used to coming in and maybe doing this at the kind of the lowest levels and working throughout their career and being exposed to this. We don't we don't quite have the same approach in the State Department, but I should say uh, we we do have uh, other traditions. For example, role playing is is used a great deal in the State Department. In fact, in order to become a Foreign Service officer, you have to pass a uh, a written exam and then you pass an oral exam, and part of that oral exam is they are putting you in a, in a, several roles and seeing how you'll respond. In one, you could be trying to help out an American citizen who is in this, uh, this third country and is in trouble. And so you've got to provide assistance. And in another scenario, you might be delivering a difficult message to the host government who is not going to be happy with the message you're delivering. And so they're wanting to see how you react. And then you know, there's a group exercise as well, where you're playing a role of trying to figure out which projects, uh, the embassy may support. So again, they're, they're, they're putting you in roles and looking at your judgment and how well you adapt and work with others. So, uh, role-playing begins at the very beginning and then throughout your training, it's used in, in almost, uh, or in many of the training programs that people will take or in language training, it'll be used. So, uh, in certain aspect, uh, Role-playing is, is widely used in the department.
0: So I'm assuming that you were assigned to the job of conflict game designer because you yourself have an interest in, in history with games. If Is that correct? And if so, what is your history with gaming?
1: Well, uh, I, I should mention it uh, started before the State Department. Actually, growing up, I did the more traditional games, but I wasn't uh, heavy into, into war games and things growing up. But uh, in graduate school, I well, I got my graduate degrees in adult education, and was focusing on experiential learning. So, was very keen on how do you find experiences to help people learn out in the community or or in the work environment that teaches them to learn from their experience. So, games are such a natural for that. Uh, so that I was, I guess you could tell. Say that I was primed to to be interested in the use of games, and uh, was able to attend uh, some seminar games and some war games, and just got excited about the, their potential and decided, you know, I really I really want to be doing this, more of this. So I had actually proposed uh, for this special assignment that I delve deeper into this and uh, try to develop. Uh, materials and and capabilities and and just develop it further and uh, the leadership uh, in my bureau agreed with that and and so hence I was able to to do this uh, so f- for gaming now uh, I find the people who are very creative in the approach to developing seminar games or war games. Uh, do have a background with board games and get inspired by that. I mean, Mitch Reed is a great example working with the Air Force. He is one of the more creative people in the work he does in his professional war game design, but he's also heavily, heavily involved in board games. And I think he's in uh, mechanics that he's seen in board games end up uh, influencing his thinking about how to design his his professional war games. So I have... Uh, you know, take an inspiration from that. And I've been trying to expose myself to just a larger range of games uh, so that I could learn and, and get inspired by, by them.
0: So just to clarify, you have this job because you proposed your own special project job. And so it's not something that is a normal career path to become a conflict game designer. This is something that is part your enthusiasm and part maybe a change in State Department culture to embrace this more?
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, I'm a Foreign Service officer, which means I have an assignment like every two years or so, two or three years. So I would go on to another assignment and then another and another. Uh, in, in the State Department, uh, civil service people will be hired for one job and kind of stay with that one job. and uh, But Foreign Service will keep changing and moving their positions. So... In the future, it, there could be a possibility, and I think you know some people realize the value and importance of this, of possibly creating some civil service positions that will be there to help others develop tabletop exercises and matrix games and, and use gaming uh, for their own analytic goals or strategic thinking or just analyzing assumptions about some plan you want to run. So my hope is that, uh, yes, in the future, there actually will be positions that uh, where you could be hired into doing that and that you would be a resource to help other people uh, develop games around a wide range of issues.
0: So you mentioned before, and I'd actually been intending to ask, so I'm glad you did, that your uh, higher degrees are in education and specifically in adult education. What led you to that and was gaming always a part of it or was that an insight that you had as you were researching how people learn? Yes,
1: I actually started as an undergraduate in anthropology and uh, studying cultural anthropology and uh, went off to, to grad school at Washington State University, originally in anthropology. But a friend of mine from Indonesia who was also in the anthropology department, but was taking courses in the adult education department, told me all about it, and I was just curious. So I went over and talked with them and realized, wow, I didn't realize that one, that this was even a field that you could study and, uh, or that the university even had a department in it. So after investigating, I realized, I really wanna spend more time here. So I ended up switching uh, from my master's in anthropology or over to adult education. And then uh, my wife and I went off to, to Fiji as Peace Corps volunteers. And I was very interested, in, and still am interested in appropriate technology and renewable energy. So I was working on this little smokeless stove project with villagers. And I was trying to show them how to, how to make this stove in a way that I was taught how to do it. Basically making cement and you kind of put it together and, and people can use it. And it saves firewood and it gets smoke out of the kitchens and has a lot of benefits. And once people figured out what I was trying to do and you know, they they made improvements, they made it easier to build and they made improvements to the design. And I just thought, wow, you know, it's far more interesting to help people be more creative in solving their own problems than just provide the solutions to those problems. And at the same time, I was on on. Leave uh, and went to a used bookstore and saw a book on creativity and said, "Ah, this is it. This is what I want to study. How do you help people be more creative in solving their problems?" So that's when I went to um, to work on my doctorate at the University of Wisconsin in adult education, but a focus on how do you help people be more creative, and uh, and then brought in the experiential learning part of that in helping people learn in the environment that they find themselves in and enhancing their creativity to learn from their experience and, and come up with novel ways of solving their problems. So that's kind of the, the genesis of, of my interest. And, and I, it still remains. I'm keenly interested now, as I think about games, how can we use them in new ways uh, to solve problems out in the community? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm keen to promote Matrix Gaming for people who are out there to, to look into it and encourage them to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm working in uh, my neighborhood food bank. Maybe we could use Matrix Gaming to think about how we can improve services or problems that we may be facing or new ways of doing things or, you know, whatever, whatever community group or organization you're part of bring this in and start with a few people, get experience with it, and then learn from that experience and share your share your experience with others so that we can uh, learn from the great innovations that you do.
0: So this is really interesting. Basically, what you're talking about is something that's role playing, but for real life situations. But as an educator, you also know, how do you get people to buy in to what you're doing and really commit to a game or to a role playing experience,
1: yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a problem. And even in the professional environment, there are people that uh, just see games as as you know trivial things and uh, you know beneath me. <laughs> so those are the people you don't really want to invite. Uh, but uh, I think when you bring people together and you're focused on an issue that they care about, and they want to see, can I learn something from this? That most people will approach it with an open mind. And if you craft the experience uh, so that it, you can kind of immerse them in it, like you create a scenario that sounds compelling to them and they want to explore this and you provide, you know, the inputs. Okay, well, this has now happened or or that action caused this unanticipated action to occur. Now, what are you going to do? And so, you know, people get in that role, especially if they're in a problem-solving role, and if they're working with others as part of a team, I find people will get into it and, uh, and often will get <laughs> pretty emotionally uh, involved as well uh, in, the, in the fate of their, their, their fictional scenario. So I, I think it's how it's crafted and selecting the right people.
0: So do you think that that level of commitment helps people learn more information and learn it more deeply than just learning something the traditional way with some books and some citations and writing a research paper?
1: I do. Um, And, and I'd really like to test this. Uh, So, you know, if, if possible, I would like to have like a, say a week long traditional training course. That's, you know, typical um, lecture format, say, a topic on leadership development, for example, and have people go through that and then ask them, you know, what they learned and then maybe come back a little bit later and find out how they applied the material. Have that and then at the same time have a different approach and have like a game within game kind of thing where you're put in the role of needing to use these concepts in some environment. And when you need it in the game, you can then, in a just-in-time learning format, call up, say, a mini little lecture that that provides information or insights on that skill you're trying to use. So you call it up when you need it, and then you apply it in the game, and you get feedback from the game. And I would, this is just my speculation, that I think if you had a, a large extended game that allowed people to do this over a week and you compare the two groups that I believe the game group would have probably learned the material deeper, better, and a little bit later, you would probably find that they could apply it in real life better than, than the, the, the traditional class. So this is just my speculation, but I really would like to test this out. Um, and, and I really think uh, we would find that, that people could potentially learn deeper through these techniques.
0: So essentially what you're imagining is almost a solo gaming module sort of thing where people are incentivized to want to learn the information that you want them to learn because you're putting them in a situation where they're immediately going to need it, which is going to force a different kind of focus than like, Oh yeah. Okay. Let me sit through the training. Maybe I'll need this sometime.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. Putting that role of, Oh, I need to do this. And if if you're really struggling and in, you know, involved in the scenario, then then you want you want that information. And you want it right now. So I, I think so. And you mentioned solo games. And I think I've become fascinated with the power, I think, that solo games can provide. Because I think you could create a solo game before a training, and then people can do it on their own schedule, and they can do it repeatedly. And so it kind of primes them. And then you have your, your training activity. And then maybe you have a, a separate or, or different uh, solo game afterwards where they They use the materials in different ways or new ways, and I think that combination could also be extremely powerful in learning. But uh, I'm yeah, I'm excited about the potential for solo games and uh, wanting to to just learn more and more about them.
0: Well, you've come to the right place. So, so here's my question though: just as a teacher, too, um, how do you give feedback? In a game like that, it's, how do you make a game that's so flexible because they're going to have to use information? How do you make it responsive? You know, How do you balance between having the game need to be free enough for the person to needs to learn information and apply it in a unique way, but also rigid enough that you can spit out like a set, you did this right, you did this wrong, this went well, this didn't? How deep can something like that go?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I've only seen bits and pieces here and there that kind of hint at it. Um, One example would be people have different learning styles. Uh, Some can can dive into deep text and really get a lot of information out of that. So I would want to be able to provide uh, information in that text format, but I'd also want to be able to provide it maybe in a a, um, lecture format, an audio format. People could hear it and absorb that information. I'd also be able to want to provide it maybe in a In a simulation or something that a visual representation of it so ideally i would try to provide information in various ways and let the the learner kind of navigate through what he or she finds that they use best but also encourage okay you primarily like to learn in one way but let's try and reinforce the material by looking at it or or, or examining it in another way as well so use some of your other uh, approaches to learning that uh, that um, you may not normally use but by using different approaches you're going to learn that material much better there was a a uh, yeah, I recently attended a the connections war gaming conference which was held online this year And there was a presentation on a Dilemmas game. It was a computer-based game, but it was on COVID-19. And you were put in the role of being um, a leader of a country. And you had to make all kinds of decisions about, um, you know, do we lock down? Are we opening things up? And you had, so they they provide you with a series of questions. Are you going to do this or are you going to do that? And you had a series of advisors to choose from. And there were there were medical experts and then there were uh, political experts and then there were people from the community and then there were special interest groups. And so you you could hear from all these people and then you had to make a decision. And then the game would bring you to another another problem and then another one and another one. And so it slowly developed. But at the end of that, you were then given a readout of because it could track all the decisions you were making who did you consult, uh, who who did you weigh more, you know, their opinions more on your advisors that you we were using, and what were your actual decisions. So in the end, you know, you, it gave you this whole plot of all your decisions kind of uh, spread out in front of you. So that seemed like, okay, there you could get a whole lot of detail about the decisions you were making and how you were responding to the challenges that were presented in front of you.
0: So these games are partially about learning in a sort of research and actually gathering information sense, but they also teach you something about yourself, the kinds of decisions you make, maybe give you insights into the way that you would perform in real life, weak spots to watch out for. Is that what I'm understanding from this?
1: Yes, I, I think so. One of the things that I hadn't thought about, but when I went through this program, at the end it said I was like, I think 84% focused on uh protecting the health of population and hadn't given that any thought. But when I went back and looked at the decisions and stuff and said, yeah, that's where definitely I was leaning in the whole series of, of choices that were presented to me. And there was a lot of difficult trade-offs. There were economic issues and there were social unrest issues. So uh, in that whole mix of things uh, I, I tended to have this fairly, consistent approach. And that was something that I hadn't thought about or even considered much. And so the game allowed uh, some peering inside of my own thinking that I wasn't aware that I was doing.
0: That is so interesting. So out of curiosity, you know, games, you play them, you explore, and they also kind of present ways of being to you and make some actions more successful than others. Is there also a way in which the games are training foreign service officers to respond in certain ways or giving them positive feedback for certain types of problem solving?
1: I, I think at this point, not quite, except in the area of language, we we teach uh many many languages at the foreign service institute and there are a number of games to help you try to you know immerse yourself in the culture and use the language as you're you know going to a market or something like that and so for those i think they they really do help you learn the language in a context you know you're not just remembering vocabulary words you're you're trying to learn in a context And I believe probably when you are in that country trying to use the language, you probably will learn it better because of that. But in terms of right now, helping you deal with really complex problems, not, well, I should say, that's what some of the seminar games or the table topics are trying to do. They're trying to alert you to something you might not have thought about. And so therefore, you're going to, okay, here's here's a gap in our plan that we hadn't considered. So now we're going to go back and, and do that better. But, uh, you know, when, when you're at the post and you've got all these different challenges coming up ahead, um, you know, I don't know that we have games that will help you be more strategic. Although I think uh, long-term board gamers will say, there's, you know, playing different kinds of board games helps your strategic thinking. It helps you think about, okay, allocation of resources and, and having to make difficult choices between things. So, you know, if you're used to that, maybe you won't be paralyzed by all the choices in front of you, and maybe, maybe you could. Um, so I think in the future, we could probably make games that are a little tighter uh, directed towards that environment. But in the meantime, There's probably a number of good board games out there that will, in an entertaining way, help you think about how you deal with complexity.
0: So you talked a lot about people being able to learn more in environments or in situations that they found compelling. How much effort is put in State Department uh, seminar games into making the situation interesting or compelling as opposed to just educational?
1: Yes, I think, uh, again, it, it usually you're dealing with a number of experts on the subject. So they're approaching this problem. And so it could be very narrow. It could be uh, something that people outside of that expertise wouldn't even really be, what wouldn't even be focusing on that as a problem. And in that case, uh, you don't, you, you provide a general scenario. Okay, you know, this is, this is, the environment we're operating in. This is the nature of the problem. You know, these are the resources that you have available, or here's problems we've had when we're facing this issue. Uh, now, what are you going to do about it? And um, so, I think people quickly flip over into that problem-solving mode. So you don't have to uh, invest as much into that elaborate, um, background scenario.
0: Interesting. So we talked about games as a way to kind of open your mind to a problem, a way to maybe look at yourself and your decision-making processes. How much attention is given kind of to the post game where you look over what happened and analyze the sort of session report?
1: Yes, that's absolutely critical. Uh, there's, uh, So the Naval War College is, you know, have been doing probably wargaming longer than almost anyone else. They have a huge, huge staff and they have an entire team that's focused just on data collection and analysis of the game material. So from the beginning, when they do a really large game that could involve 400 people and they're taking a year to prepare, they've got an entire team thinking about how are we going to collect the data, and uh, and they could have entire you know network computer systems that that are collecting data and note takers listening to what people are doing in the room a whole range of ways of collecting the data, but that's critical because that's where you're going to gain insights and understanding, and with these really really big games so much is going on that it's it's. Impossible for anyone to even know uh, what's happening in all the different subunits and sections in different rooms. So that's where all the data collection occurs. Now, State Department, much, much smaller scale with a tabletop exercise or, or a matrix game. A matrix game, we might have like eight people around a table, but we would still want to have a number of note takers around the corner, maybe one assigned to each team. Because if, if they... If they break off and go into a separate room to talk, well, you want a note taker kind of scurrying after them to collect notes about what they're considering and what they what they thought they were going to do, what they rejected and they didn't do. Some useful insights can come from uh, people just considering, well, we could do this, we could do that. And then they don't even do it in the game. Uh, but if you didn't have a note taker collecting that, that would have been lost. But there might have been really useful insights from that it's like ooh we didn't really think about that as a course of action so having note takers around is probably the the simplest way of collecting the data and depending on how the how the game is structured you could use other ways as well again we're thinking about how can we do games in a distributed environment where people are at a distance and so now we're collecting, you know, email traffic or chats that that are going between different groups. So all of that's to be considered as you design the game, uh, but but definitely that that's the big goal, uh, and is the big difference between doing a game for fun, which you can just enjoy the process, versus using a professional game because. There's a purpose for it. You are looking at some kind of problem and you want to capture any insights that you can into that problem.
0: So this is so interesting because i had kind of been thinking about it on a personal level because I mean, I play games for personal entertainment. So I was thinking, oh, I could reflect on my game and see what kind of person I am. But this is a whole new level where it's, it's not only that the game is informative for the people playing it, but it serves possibly a much larger purpose for anybody who wants to look over what happened when considering those issues. Is that how this is used?
1: Yes, sure. Uh, what made you success, successful in your strategy that, that you you did as a team uh, versus another team and why they were not not as successful? So teasing that out, or or I think another really important thing is just teasing out assumptions. Okay, you didn't do this, why? you know, it seemed like a, a clear possibility. And then you tease out the assumptions behind their thinking and realize, okay, they didn't even consider this, this, and this because of um, some way they were thinking about the problem. And so, yes, look, there's a, there's a very rich environment there. And uh, so a lot of thought has to go into not wanting to miss any any critical insights and, and not losing anything when, when you're... Uh, when you're playing these.
0: Huh. So you mentioned playing at a distance. How has distance play and the use of Zoom, how has that affected or maybe even evolved the way that these sorts of simulations play out?
1: Yeah, there's there's actually in adult education, there's a whole subfield of distance education. And there's certain parallels uh, between distance education and trying to think about, Designing a game and and playing it at a distance. And you can think in terms of physical distance, uh, but people are on at the same time. So, you know, having a Zoom chat and you're both on at the same time, but you can be physically far separated from each other, versus distance in time or asynchronously. So I get on at one point and do a move or something. And then someone in a other side of the world gets on and does it at another time. So in that case, we're both physically separated, but we're also separated in an in a asynchronous or in a time uh, separation. So distance education has dealt with a lot of uh, these issues in terms of how do you help learners learn at a distance? And a lot of research has been done on using various tools and techniques. And usually a new tool comes out and, and some of the first research comes out that compares it with traditional face-to-face learning. And, and almost all the research shows that a well-designed distance program shows no difference in learning outcomes with, with the in-person one. If it's well-designed, there can be really poorly designed ones where people have a hard time learning in that environment. But, but uh, so taking insights from that, I think uh, and people are, are kind of rediscovering these elements on their own anyway when they're thinking about how do I do a game at a distance and how do I figure out all those other support mechanisms I would maybe normally have in a face-to-face, which I won't have. So working around that and working around what's available with the technology are all the challenges. One example that I am kind of got excited about, I was listening to a professor from Alaska, talk about his experience in a format that people have kind of referred to as play-by-mail, which was maybe used more often in the 1970s. But the idea of you would have a group at a distance and give them a scenario, and they would think about what they were going to do, and they would write out their actions and send it to you. And you could have another party, uh, say an opposing force, Respond. think about what they would do in that situation and send you their response. So you collect them all and then you think about it and say, okay, uh, based on this scenario and based on what this blue team did and based on what this red team did, here's what I think would happen. And so then you rewrite the scenario. Okay, this is what occurred. And then basically send it back to them. And then they have like another week or or so to think about what their next action is going to be. And so in this way, you can evolve this game over several months. And one of the advantages of this is that people can keep doing their normal work and do this on the side. uh, And come in and also have time to think about it. You know, it's they. They don't have to be thinking about decisions right then and there with a huge time pressure. Now, some games you might want that. You might want to pressure people to under uh, difficult time situations to come up with decisions. But in other situations where you want them to reflect and think about it, this kind of format seems like it's, it's very flexible and doesn't require a lot of high tech equipment. You know, you're, you're using email and maybe PowerPoint or, or something like that. Uh, to run it. So I'm excited about this potential.
0: That is fantastic. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm going to ask you one more question before wrapping this up, which is, what are you playing right now for fun? Are you a, currently a hobbyist gamer as well? I, I
1: am, and I'm trying to, to learn from them. And I have to thank you for uh, recommending The Wars of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, you know, I I was interested in Stoic philosophy, uh, but the combination of being able to, to read basically his journal and maybe read a biography about him and then play him in war. It's just, it brings it to a whole new level. So, uh, as well as learning, you know, the mechanics of how to do a good solo game. So thank you for that recommendation. I'm, I'm really enjoying it.
0: I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And also it sounds like you're a gamer after my heart. I love to do the full experience of like play the game, read the book, think about the primary sources. Yes. I'm glad I'm not
1: the only one. Yeah, it it just—it just—it's more the immersive experience, and it just—you know—just helps develop a lot of empathy as well. Uh, um, Difficult decision being an emperor at war and having all kinds of other problems going on.
0: That's awesome, and if you're interested in more stuff of that nature, I've actually got a review copy of Stilico right now, and it's looking pretty good. Stay tuned.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I'm I'm very excited. I I'm so impressed with the designer. I just had, you know, some some questions I didn't understand about some of the uses of the cards, and just put a question on on Board Game Geek, and he just responded immediately and clarified uh, what I was doing wrong, and so I just I just appreciate him so much, and so I am looking forward to his next game.
0: Awesome. Any other game recommendations from you before I let you go?
1: Well, it, there's this one I was playing with my family. It's Steampunk Rally. And it's a it's a game where you are playing an inventor and you're you're creating this vehicle and you've got a you've got a you know tradeoffs between heat and water and electricity and you're basically building your engine as you're going in the race but your engine's falling apart and it's failing and things are going wrong and you're having to rebuild it and it's just your it's this ongoing engine building thing where you're allocating dice to these different functions and it's just a mind stretcher but just a lot of fun as well and so i'm also trying to think okay what kind of things can i learn from those mechanics so i just appreciate um i, I you know i i probably do like getting uh, attached by the theme at first uh, another one is fields of green where uh, very different. You're, you're building your own farm uh, and you're, you're trying to, your fields of crops and your orchards and you've got your animals and you're trying to figure out how to allocate water. But again, you've got this little tableau of cards of your farm as you see it being developed. And that's very satisfying, but also those trade-offs and, um, as you're trying to optimize your firm and and take care of all these needs is also very compelling
0: that is awesome so robert thank you so much for coming on to this podcast and spending this time with me everyone else just so you know robert is an international man of mystery no there is no place to just find him on the internet although do you feel comfortable giving your bgg handle
1: uh you know i don't even remember what it is i don't... <laughs> Well, this is embarrassing. (laughs) Not at all.
0: Okay, so our State Department contact disappears into the mist, but you can find me anywhere as Beyond Solitaire, so feel free to reach out with any questions. (laughs) Robert Domain, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks, Liz. It's been really fun.
0: Happy gaming, everybody.